Tomorrow by. Good morning. I'm Judith Lay and this is Praise, the programme that connects faith and daily life. Manx Radio. And on Praise today, a much-loved Manxman is remembered and we get an insight into the life of a great artist. But first, a hymn to start the day. Christ whose glory fills the skies, Christ the true and only light. Son of righteousness, arise, triumph o'er the shades of night. was the St. Michael Singers with a hymn celebrating the coming of the morning. Yesterday was the first day of the Guild, the Manx Music Festival, and as I was in the Villa Marina preparing to start my daily reports on the classes, I felt again the sense of loss of a friend and colleague who was a keen supporter of the Guild and a co-presenter with me of our coverage here on Manx Radio. I'm sure you've guessed I'm talking about the late John Kenyuk. And as I was thinking about our work on the Guild together, I remembered that I have some recordings of his thought for the day for Easter time, and I thought we could share them again a little later in the programme. But first, let's welcome back Reverend David Gordon, a former pastor of Broadway Baptist Church here in Douglas, who was back on the island recently at the invitation of the Island Spirituality Network to give a talk entitled In the Steps of Vincent van Gogh. David left the island some 18 years ago and is now minister and team leader at Kirkintillich Baptist Church, north of Glasgow. David has had an interest in Van Gogh for a number of years, and during a sabbatical last year, he spent time tracing the artist's life. 
and he made some surprising discoveries which revealed that being an artist was not actually the biggest driving force in Van Gogh's life. Here's David now to take up the story. I, I discovered really that Vincent's father was a pastor in, in a small church in, in Holland and also his grandfather was a pastor as well. And so he very much was brought up in a Christian home where he was taught Bible stories. And in fact, it was almost assumed that somebody within the family would end up going into the church, if you like. But um, he showed no inclination to do so. Then he began work in The Hague with an art dealer. In fact, the art dealer was his uncle. The Van Gogh family were, were quite wealthy in terms of the wider family. And eventually he got moved to London. And at some point in his early 20s, when he was in London, he had what could only be described as almost an evangelical conversion. And we have no idea how that happened. But he lived in sort of Kennington Oval area, Brixton area, in the south side of London. Only a fairly short walk from Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was the event that you went to in London on a Sunday at the end of the 19th century. You know, he regularly had 6,000 people attending his services. And so whether you were religious or not, that's where you went on a Sunday. Vincent kept on his bedside table when he lived in London a Bible and a little book called Little Gems from Spurgeon. And uh, certainly by the time he left London on the first occasion, he had a very, very clear sense that he wanted to give his life to serve God. So what happens next? Well, he ended up getting sacked from the art dealers in London and uh, ended up moving back to Paris and back to Holland briefly. But then he saw an advertisement which brought him back to help as a teacher in a small boarding school in Ramsgate. That only lasted a few months whenever the school moved to Isleworth near Richmond in London. And there he started work almost as a curate within the church. He wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters to his brother and most of those are still available. And he was almost a more avid letter writer than he was a painter. And so only if you read his letters do you understand the man. And at this point, he was going to prayer meetings. He was teaching in Sunday school. Then in 1876, he preached his first sermon in Richmond Methodist Church. He preached from a verse in Psalm 119. And he says, when I came out of the pulpit, it was like coming out of a cave into the light. And he used to preach in various little chapels around the Richmond area. And he did that for maybe about a year before heading back home at Christmas time. And his family weren't overly happy because he wasn't earning much money. So he ended up moving to a bookshop in a place called Drenth. But yeah, while he was in London, he used to preach around. We even know what his favourite hymn was. His favourite hymn was an old Sankey hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story of Jesus and His Love. And whenever he was on holidays in Paris, he laments the fact that he missed the great revival crusade at Spurgeon's Tabernacle by Moody and Sankey. He then attempted to train for the ministry to become a minister, but he struggled with all the Latin and the Greek. This was in Amsterdam. And, uh, and all the entry qualifications in order to study theology. 
So he left that and went to a training college outside Brussels to train people as evangelists or missionaries. And uh, he didn't do particularly well at that either. But he had a real passion to bring the good news of Jesus to the most hurting people that he could find. And so he ended up, he was now about 27 at this time, or 20, 26, and uh, he ended up working in the Borinage in Belgium, uh, in perhaps one of the poorest districts in Western Europe amongst coal miners. And he ended up living in a hovel because he didn't feel he ought to live in better quality accommodation than the miners. He would go down the mines, he would meet with injured miners because there was often explosions in the mines. He even ripped off his shirt in order to tend to the wounds of miners who had been hurt. And he would kneel beside them in their little cottages and pray with them. At the end, he almost burnt himself out. But what happened was the church leaders said he was acting in a manner that was unbecoming a Christian minister. And that's what really struck me, how the church authorities at that time said, you know, you really can't live like this and function like this and call yourself a Christian minister. And so they, they took that away from him. And he was devastated because he used to love reading Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ. And he says, I just want to imitate Christ. I just want to serve him. I just want to sacrifice everything for him. And so he ended up becoming really disillusioned with the church. And he says, I've decided to pick up my pencil and draw and paint again. So he only painted for the last 10 years of his life. This difference with the church must have been heartrending for him. What happened to his faith then? Well, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of dispute over what happened to his faith beyond then. I think he never, ever was reconciled to the church as an institution. So even when he died 10 or 11 years later in 1890, at the age of 37, it was actually advertised the day of his funeral, the service would take place in the church at Auvergne. But when it came to it, he wasn't allowed to have the service. And they had to score out all the details of where the service was being held, partly because he had committed suicide. And as far as the church authorities were concerned, there was no hope eternally for people that took their own lives in those days. And so the funeral took place in the little flat that he had rented and simply walked up to the cemetery with no priest, no minister, no involvement by the church authorities. But I think throughout his life, he never, ever lost his faith. I think there were times when he lived in Paris. He was very far away from God and almost ended up an alcoholic. But I think particularly when he went to Arles in the south of France and actually ended up in an asylum, there's a whole load of indications in his paintings that he had found hope and still trusted ultimately in God. And I think unless you read his letters where he explains what he's trying to show, that doesn't come across. If you just look at the painting itself, it's not obvious. But whenever you read the letters where he's explaining to his brother why he was painting this, you then begin to see something different. 
And of course, this is the problem with somebody of his magnitude in the art world, that one tends to look at the pictures, analyse what you see or maybe what you want to see in the mm-hmm. picture and not look at the at the complete backstory because what, what happens, the pictures are a, a small slice of a much bigger, deeper Absolutely. life. And, and yeah. he's, he is somebody who has obviously touched you very deeply, David. Was it, was it yeah. one of those things where you discovered a little bit and longed to know more? Yes, it was. And let me just give you one more story before I come back to you on that. Not long after he gave up his missionary work, he fell out with his father and he ended up in The Hague, where he fell in with a prostitute called Sine. And uh, he took pity on her because she had a little five-year-old girl and she was also pregnant and seriously ill. And he paid for all her hospital care and so on and ended up moving her into his studio. Now, it's a very mixed story, as you can imagine. But um, the little baby that was born is placed in a little iron cradle and he draws a picture of it with... um, her with his older sister rocking the cradle and in his letter to his brother he says every time I see a baby in a cradle it reminds me of the Christmas story and it reminds me of the frailty and vulnerability of of God so even at a point in his life where you would have thought he's furthest away from anything And it was something he would have taken from Rembrandt. Rembrandt painted pictures of the cradle with the same meaning behind them. And so even at almost, people would say almost the lowest point of his life, he was still looking at that baby in the cradle, the baby of a prostitute, not his own baby, and saying, I see something of the reality of the Christmas story and the vulnerability of God in the midst of that. And yeah, that's partly, I think, you know, the older you get, Judith, and you say I haven't changed, but I, you know, I certainly am nearly 20 years older, you realise that the world is full of broken people. And I think I realise the older I get that I'm a broken person as well. And I realise that more now than I did when I lived in the Isle of Man. Do you know, in the Isle of Man, I might went into prison and thought, these are all broken guys, but actually I'm not too bad. The longer I live, the more I realise how broken I am and how broken almost every one of my churches. And I think whenever I allow Vincent in his brokenness to speak to me through some of his pictures, I also find hope and, and transformation. I think some of your listeners will be familiar with, with Henri Nouwen, who was just one of the great heroes of the Christian faith and lived amongst people with disability in the arch community and so on. And he's written this amazing book called The Wounded Healer, where he says that ultimately those who are wounded are those who can heal most effectively. And he actually says in one of his books that Vincent was his wounded healer. That as he meditated upon Vincent's letters, as he looked upon his pictures and reflected on all the brokenness and yet the hope and healing that emerged out of that, it brought hope and healing to now himself. And so I think that's what I find, that the more I've looked at this broken man, the more I see evidence of 
myself. And you realise, for example, in prison that everyone there also has a backstory. Not to justify what they've done, but you realise that if I was in the same situation or brought up in the same family context, I might well have ended up in the same place myself. And also discover a God who actually meets us in our brokenness. A God who is vulnerable too. And, and a God who just comes down and just wants to, to love us in spite of the mess that we're in, in spite of the fact that we don't get things right all the time. He just doesn't give up on us. You know, he keeps reaching out to us.
the London Fox Choir and Vincent van Gogh's favourite hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. And my thanks to Reverend David Gordon for a fascinating insight into the life and spirituality of the great artist. John Kenyuk was a regular and very popular contributor to our Thought for the Day feature here on Manx Radio. He could always see and explain a connection between his life as a farmer, his love of nature and his love and trust in his Lord. He loved the changing seasons of Ireland life too and could always see God's hand in a moment at the Royal Show or the TT races. This morning I offer you just a small selection of John's thoughts that was for so many of us either the perfect reflective moment before sleep or an inspiring thought to send us out into the day ahead. The northern end of Slewellian Mountain rises steeply above the valley just west of St John's. And even on a sunny day there is a long shadow and it's a cold, miserable experience if you're living under that shadow. But as the sun gets higher, the shadow recedes, until on the longest day the whole valley is bathed in glorious warm sunshine, with all the evidence of high summer. Well, if it's a wintry time for you at the moment, if things look a bit grey and a bit miserable, and if you're living under that shadow, look for the evidence. Look for the evidence of the hope that is God's hope, the evidence of the shadow receding, the sun getting higher, things getting better, the Christian hope that sustains us when things aren't as easy as they might be. Our lambing season, it's probably the most demanding time of all the farming year, because you're never quite sure when you've done enough. If I'd gone out to see them at half past three this morning instead of leaving until half past six, might I have avoided that particular problem? And when you get in after an NFU meeting in the evening, you really don't feel like getting changed into waterproofs and going out in driving rain to see that all is well and if it isn't, well, sort it out, no matter how long it takes or how wet or how cold you get. Can you believe then that there are special moments that remind me of the miracle I witness every time I see a lamb born? To see a newborn lamb take its first breath a process that must continue uninterrupted for the rest of its life, really does fill me with wonder. Easter and Jesus' resurrection speaks of new life. And if I'm privileged to see God creating life right in front of my eyes as a shepherd, why should I question his ability to create eternal life? I've been privileged to share with you some of my thoughts, the thoughts of a farmer and a countryman at Easter. I've tried to share with you the way in which my work and the things of nature confirm, strengthen and deepen my faith and my belief. When Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it stays just as it is, I know exactly what he means. I've only to look over the gate of the field sown to barley last week. 
when he talks about flowers and birds. I live and work among them. And when God says, springtime and harvest won't fail, <laughs> I depend on that for a living. When Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, well, I can believe and understand that in the same way as I understand or trust the things I see in the course of my work as a farmer or my life as a countryman. Someone suggested to me some time ago that technology was just waiting for man's imagination. Gadgets and wizardry are progressing so fast that we're in grave danger of losing our sense of wonder. You've only just marvelled at what a gadget can do when you discover that it has been superseded and it's now out of date. And what about mystery? It does seem as though nothing may remain a mystery, but must be explained to whatever is the level of our understanding. And if it's not, then we won't accept it. Last week on the farm, we drilled the barley, the oats and the peas, seeds sown to produce next autumn's harvest. I've been doing that now for more years than I care to remember. And every year, the first sign of Bruet, the first green shoot of corn, fills me with wonder. I can't explain what happens. And the good thing is, I don't need to know. All I need is the faith to put the seed in the ground and the belief that it will grow. No more do I know how God raised Jesus on that first Easter day, but like the barley and the oats, it calls for faith and belief. Thank you for listening to this week's Praise Podcast. There's a new Praise Podcast available every Sunday morning. You can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify via the Manx Radio smartphone app or at manxradio.com. So, till we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for your company and I wish you and those you love every blessing in the days ahead. <laughs>